Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, our guest in this edition of Radio Curious, visited Ukiah, California on May 7, 2016, to speak on behalf of presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders. She stopped by Radio Curious for a visit. Tulsi Gabbard represents the 2nd Congressional District of Hawaii, the most culturally diverse congressional district in the United States, which encompasses the entire state except Honolulu. Congresswoman Gabbard was twice deployed to the Middle East, is a major in the Army National Guard, and a member of the House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee. In this interview, Tulsi, as she likes to be addressed, shares some of her personal background, her perspectives on the impact and consequences of war, and the type of military mentality that the Commander-in-Chief of the United States military should have to best serve our country. Tulsi Gabbard, welcome to Radio Curious, and aloha to you, Aloha to you, Barry. Great to be here. What prompted you to enter politics? You did so at a relatively young age. I was 21 when I first ran for the State House of Representatives in Hawaii. Uh, I had no um, inclination towards politics as a kid, uh, but I grew to appreciate from a young age um, how important it is to be of service, uh, and that, in fact, true happiness uh, in life can only be found when you try to dedicate your actions and your life in the service of God and the service of God's children, taking care of and serving others around you. And I didn't know as a young person how I would try to do that, uh, but it was um, my interest and, and passion around taking care of our land and water, taking care of our environment that first um, pushed me toward uh, seeing the opportunity to make more impact uh, and, and make a bigger difference uh, by running for political office. And that's how that began. Your role with Bernie Sanders' campaign for president is striking. Tell us how it came to you. I was serving as a vice chair of the Democratic National Committee. Looking at this election, I became increasingly frustrated that as the early states were beginning to vote, people were not being informed about the records and the contrasts between our two Democratic candidates or the Democratic candidates on the slate at the time as it relates to uh, the issue of war and peace, the cost of war, the consequences of the decisions that our next commander-in-chief would be tasked with. If you look at many of the debates, for example, a few of the debates that had occurred uh, early on, there was very little attention being paid to what I believe is the most important job that a president has, is to be the commander-in-chief. Uh, very little attention was being paid to foreign policy records and decisions that had been made uh, by Secretary Clinton and by Senator Sanders and what their vision, their judgment, their proposed courses of action for current day uh, situations are. These are things that were not being discussed in, in any detail, if at all. And this was something that concerned me deeply as these early states began to vote because people were not equipped 
with the information that they needed, I felt, to make a, a truly informed decision. Why do you think this information was not uh, forthcoming? There were probably a lot of reasons why, but I think it unfortunately speaks to many people in the media and others not recognizing truly the importance of this issue and uh, how consequential it really is. Well, let's address it. Maybe we could begin with the cost of war. Well, this this really went to the heart of why I made the decision to uh, resign as vice chair of the DNC uh, and endorse Senator Bernie Sanders because I saw in him uh, someone who um, exercises good judgment and has the foresight necessary uh, to think through carefully um, the consequences of making that decision to use our military power uh, and someone who understands the cost of war. As a member of Congress, as one of the younger members of Congress, you have an unusual perspective on the cost of war. My position is not that unusual. Uh, it's just unfortunate that we don't see uh, more of our nation's leaders uh, reflecting a position that I believe um, the majority of the American people hold. And that is one of recognizing that using military power and war is, is a choice of last resort, that we should only use that military power when necessary to keep the American people safe when it is in our best interest, uh, and that we should not be using that military power for unnecessary, costly, counterproductive, interventionist regime change wars. Uh, this is uh, something I feel strongly about. As a war veteran who's deployed twice to the Middle East uh, after 9-11, uh, and who, serving in a medical unit, saw firsthand the immeasurably high human cost uh, of war, um, the toll that it takes, and how that cost of war continues um, to be carried uh, by our veterans for those who, who do make it home. We don't see that cost of war or read about it in the news. What did you see? I saw every day, one of my responsibilities in, in my job there uh, was to uh, go through a list, a name-by-name -name list of every single casualty and injury that had occurred the day prior in the entire uh, country of Iraq. Uh, we had a brigade combat team of nearly 3,000 uh, soldiers from the Hawaii Army National Guard who were operating in four different parts of the country. And I needed to go through that list and look for any of our soldiers to see if they had been injured or hurt in any way and to make sure that they were getting to the care that they needed, either um, in country or to make sure that they were evacuated as quickly as possible, whether it was to Germany or back to the United States to get the care that they needed and eventually to make sure that they got home uh, safely. That's the process. What I think is important to come out is what happens to people in war. That's what the newspapers don't tell us. People are changed. When you're in an environment and in a situation where you are surrounded uh, by death uh, and destruction, um, that, that has an impact on people in many different ways. Uh, 
And when um, you live through and you see and are surrounded by that, um, like so many of my brothers and sisters, uh, you know, I gained this appreciation for uh, peace, having seen what that cost of war is firsthand. I gained uh, this perspective of understanding how critical um, these qualifications are in our commander-in-chief and having someone who understands that cost of war, whether they've served or not, who um, can exercise sound judgment, uh, and who has this military mindset, this military mindset that means you carefully examine and analyze a specific course of action uh, that you're looking at taking. You look at, if you do this, how will this country or this terrorist group react? How will you then respond to that? And what will their response to that be? What other countries or nations or actors will be pulled in? Uh, and you walk this all the way down the line so that you have a very good picture of what the likely consequences to that course of action will be. Um, this military mindset is what has been lacking in many of these failed foreign policy decisions that we've seen made uh, since after 9-11 uh, and um, is what we know is necessary now for our next commander-in-chief. Well, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, tell us about your observations and experiences with the veterans of war who come home and what they have to deal with. Many veterans come home with wounds and injuries that are both visible and invisible. Uh, we see many of these challenges as technology has improved as protective um, gear and equipment has improved, uh, many more people are surviving the conflict, battle, combat, uh, but they're coming back with um, far more serious wounds uh, and injuries and disabilities than, in than we've seen in previous conflicts. So whether you're talking about double amputees or you know people who've lost an arm or a leg or a hand um, or uh, people who have physically returned intact, but who uh, deal with the challenges of post-traumatic stress. Um, you know, these are all uh, challenges that uh, are not often, um, they're not spoken of often enough, even though for some veterans who, you know, may they may have been home for 10 years or five years, um, yet we are still uh, in a place in our country where we have far too many veterans who are taking their own lives uh, every day uh, because of these challenges they're facing. Um, you know, on, on the other side of that, though, uh, what I see in so many of my friends and veterans who I have the chance to spend time with is this incredible resilience and this uh, deep commitment to mission first, service first, that still exists within them. Uh, I saw it here in Ukiah as I met with veterans who served in many different eras, some post 9-11, some Vietnam, some previously, uh, and 
you know, the common thread uh, amongst all of them was this continued desire to be of service, to continue to try to give back, which I think is an incredible thing for our society to recognize, an important thing to recognize that there should be no stigma attached to veterans, that if you're a business owner, you're leading a nonprofit, or if you've got an organization, it's important to recognize that veterans should be at the top of your list for people to recruit or employ or gather in as part of your team because these are people who have uh, been through some of the toughest situations um, that exist, who know how to make decisions under pressure, who have this experience of leading a team of whatever size, uh, and who most importantly uh, are service-oriented people. You know, making that commitment to uh, put your life on the line in the service of others is the most that you could ask of someone. Uh, and that's who they are. Let's talk about money. The money that is spent on war and that is not spent on the national infrastructure manifested on a material plane or fomented in the education and health of each person who lives in the United States? This question of the dollars, the American taxpayer dollars, the money that is spent um, on these unnecessary interventionist regime change wars uh, is directly connected to um, the lack of resources that we face here at home uh, as we look at failing and crumbling infrastructure, uh, as we look at the need to uh, vastly improve access to quality education, uh, to health care, to preservation of social security. The list goes on and on about the areas that we see within our own communities that we know can be and need to be improved. For those who are advocating for um, continuing these unnecessary regime change wars. Um, they want the best in their mind of all worlds where they think they can continue these wars and still uh, be able to um, support these essential programs here at home. But time and history have shown us that that is simply not the case, that you can't uh, you simply can't afford to do both. You can't afford, we can't afford uh, to continue these unnecessary wars uh, and also um, implement and, and execute and push through the kinds of uh, essential programs that we need in our communities. So then how does this relate to Bernie Sanders and his campaign for president in this year, 2016? Uh, Bernie Sanders has made clear through his uh, track record through his positions and through his vision that he has laid out that he will put an end to these unnecessary regime change wars, that he will take those dollars, those trillions of dollars that have been spent uh, and that goes towards these wars uh, and invest them in our communities here at home. You know, he's spoken in detail about uh, a whole variety of of programs and um, uh, ways that he sees possible for us to build this brighter future, to invest in not only this generation, but in the next. Uh, and this is, how, uh, this is how he's able to do it. Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, a two-deployment Middle East Army veteran 
and a member of the House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee, is our guest on this edition of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Staying still with the money. I understand that there has never been an audit of the Department of Defense. What is being done by Congress to require an audit? Uh, Legislation has been passed to require an audit. uh, And you could say that progress is being made in that direction, uh, but it's very slow. uh, And it's starting with small portions of the Department of Defense. Uh, More and more members of Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, are turning up the heat and increasing the pressure uh, for an audit to take place. When you look at the uh, waste and abuse, in particular that uh, occurred uh, after uh, the United States invaded Iraq, uh, which continued through Afghanistan, which has continued through uh, to today, uh, the numbers are, are mind-boggling, but even so, it's it's hard to wrap your head around what those numbers are exactly, because so much uh, money has been lost and was never kept track of. Uh, so as we have gone over time, um, the need for this audit and accountability, uh, as we expect for every government agency, uh, must also be applied to the Department of Defense. Well, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, uh, can you give us some comparisons of how that money is being spent? Uh, Well, one example that comes to mind is this $43 million gas station that American taxpayers spent to build uh, in Afghanistan, a $43 million gas station that uh, to this day uh, has not been used. It was a gas station built for vehicles um, that would use natural gas, the vehicles which don't exist there uh, in Afghanistan uh, for that. Uh, So, you know, when we stop and think for just a minute, okay, how could those $43 million have been used here uh, in a local school in our community? Uh, I can tell you in my home state of Hawaii, uh, we have many of our schools that are outdated and don't have air conditioners. Now, it gets pretty hot in Hawaii during the summer, uh, and we faced a situation uh, last year during the summer where we had kids in classrooms with no air conditioning uh, with over 100-degree heat. Uh, to, to think of how you can actually study and learn something when you're sitting there in that kind of heat, it boggles the mind. But you think of these examples in our own community of, well, how, how could I have used those $43 million to help our kids? to help uh, make sure our schools are, are conducive for learning. Uh, how many streets could we uh, repave with $43 million? We got a lot of potholes in Hawaii too. Uh, you know, when you, when you actually look at the dollars and cents and you see how that money could have been used uh, within our communities, then you start to get a handle on, on why this audit is necessary and why this accountability is so important. Uh, The unfortunate culture in Washington uh, is one that lacks accountability, and and, uh, as a result, we very rarely uh, see people actually being held responsible for their role in things like this. When you talk about the um, heat and lack of air conditioning, that necessarily brings me to the unheralded concept of global warming 
and the uh, a position that we're beyond the tipping point. What's going on in the Congress with regard to that? Not very much. Why? Is the sad answer. Why? You know, there, um, there are such divergent opinions and views across the country, but reflected also in Congress uh, about whether climate change even exists, uh, whether uh, or not the science backs um, up the reality of, of climate change that's occurring, uh, and people who uh, simply refuse to look at um, the facts of, of what's happening around them. Uh, now, a lot of people can, you know, throw stones at certain members of Congress who deny that climate change exists. Uh, but I think that it's important for us to um, recognize that they probably represent uh, a lot of people in their district or their communities um, who may share that view and that opinion. Uh, so as we, as we look at this challenge of climate change, I think it's important for us to try to dig deeper and look at how, you know, what, what kind of information or what kind of education needs to occur to better inform people about what's happening uh, in the world and what's happening in our communities. Because unless and until that happens, to um, assume that any action will take place uh, in, at the individual level or collectively, nationally, uh, at a congressional level, um, I, I think is not realistic. That's unfortunate. It is unfortunate, but I think it's like many issues where you know, we have an opportunity to um, deal with issues like so many important environmental issues that unfortunately get put into partisan pots where you say, well, Democrats are for this or Republicans are for that. But when it comes right down to it, just like, you know, my home in Hawaii, just like your home here in Ukiah, uh, we live in these beautiful places where regardless of uh, political views, we love our home. Let's start our conversations there as we're talking about the importance of, of protecting our environment rather than escalating those conversations to um, partisan political arguments, which at that point often uh, you lose, you've already lost. Starting the conversation is sometimes impossible when the answer is, it makes no difference the individual voter has no effect on the reality of what's going on. How do you respond to people uh, who express that as their view of our government? This is such an unfortunate view, uh, and it is unfortunately held by too many people. When you look at the lack of participation, the low voter turnout, the lack of uh, voter registration, uh, and even the challenges that exist for people who do try to get out and cast their vote. There are so many different examples that you can look to of individuals who've run for office who have won or lost their election by two or five or ten votes, ballot initiatives that have been won or lost by a handful of votes. And you can see examples where um, the individual voter would have made a difference had they made that effort to get out and cast their vote. Uh, you can see major changes in, in history that have occurred, uh, have occurred because individuals have taken that responsibility upon themselves uh, to stand up 
uh, and to take action. Uh, you can see that happening now uh, with Bernie Sanders, uh, a race that many people laughed off in the beginning, uh, a race that many people did not take seriously, uh, but were forced to once they saw the numbers of people who uh, individually uh, came out and showed uh, their support for him and the things that he stands for. Well, Tulsi, I thank you for being with us on Radio Curious, but I'd like to ask a little bit about you. Was there an aha or eureka moment in your life that affected that as a turn in your life? I had started a, uh, an environmental nonprofit as a teenager uh, where we were focused on um, clean water and we were focused on education for our youth and um, so I wrote a skit called The Adventures of Water Woman uh, where we went and took this program and a field trip uh, to elementary school students across the state of Hawaii uh, where Water Woman would go and uh, teach the villain in the story, Oily Al, about um, you know how everyday things that we do in our lives negatively impact our water and our environment. And Water Woman would swoop in at the last minute just before Oily Owl was about to do something really stupid, like pouring his, his oil from the car oil change into the storm drain, uh, or before he was dumping a bunch of pesticides on his garden. And it was incredible to me. I, I played Water Woman. I was the original Water Woman uh, in this skit. And as a teenager, I, I saw how, as we were um, teaching these lessons in a really fun way to these second, third, and fourth graders, um, you know, this light bulb would go off in their eyes and you could see this, you know, maybe slight change occurring as they understood what I believed was a really important concept about being responsible for your own actions and being thoughtful about how your actions are impacting uh, our environment. Uh, and to see that change happening literally before your eyes um, was something that impacted me greatly. Uh, and it showed me where I knew that in some way, shape or form that this is what I wanted to do with my life. Watching you tell that story, I can see the change that it made in you is, is uh, shining in your eyes. Yeah. So tell me, what would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? Continue to do what I have been doing, uh, to continue to uh, constantly seek and find uh, ways that I can be uh, positively impactful on other people's lives and on our planet, to constantly seek and find ways um, that I can do more to work for the better well-being for those around us and this place we call home. And finally, Congress member Tulsi Gabbard, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Uh, there is a, a wonderful uh, scripture that I read uh, daily called the Bhagavad Gita, uh, a scripture that contains uh, great wisdom, uh, and great inspiration um, and uh, lessons that I think we can all apply in our own lives. Well, Tulsi Gabbard, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious and Aloha.
Thank you. Aloha. Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii represents the most culturally diverse congressional district in the United States. She's a twice-deployed Army veteran in the Middle East and a member of the House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee. The book she recommends is the Bhagavad Gita Scriptures. This interview was recorded on May 7, 2016. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. They're all free. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>